You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the January 2022 edition of Editor's Picks. I wish you all a happy new year, and I had hoped to say a continued outlook in the battle against COVID-19, but unfortunately, I cannot. I do want to thank you, however, for taking the time to listen to this podcast. This month, we will begin with Bonnie Burmis giving us an overview of her, her paper entitled COVID-19 in Pregnant Women with Rheumatic Disease, Data from the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. So the first question, could you briefly describe, for those who don't know, what the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance um, is? Yes, certainly. Um, I think we all have been really amazed about how all sort of medical um, personnel have come together during this um, pandemic to do uh, go above and beyond. And this this was a very unique example. Really, um, shortly after the pandemic came to light in March of 2020, a group of providers put together uh, what was called the Global Rheumatology Alliance. And, and the purpose of this was to collect data on patients who had rheumatic diseases so that we could better understand how COVID-19 was going to impact our patients. It was an extraordinary effort um, and I was invited later on, so I was not part of that initial effort at all, but it was an extraordinary effort where they actually got surveys out on uh, websites across the world within a one week, really amazing. And um, what they've done is collected data. It's, it's provider entered data on um, patients or persons with rheumatic diseases who get um, COVID. Data includes things like their age, their diagnosis, what medications they're on. And, and this group has, because of that, been able to to um, generate a lot of information that's so important for our patient population. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to be part of the group that was looking at the subset of patients that have rheumatic diseases who um, were pregnant and self-reported or the provider reported that they had COVID contracted COVID-19. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Burmes' overview a paper entitled COVID-19 in Pregnant Women with Rheumatic Disease, data from the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance, and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with Dr. Burmes and read the full-length article as well as the accompanying editorial, The Effect of COVID-19 Illness on Pregnant Patients with Rheumatic Disease. Early Reassuring Data by Dr. Lisa Samarantano from Wild Cornell Medicine, New York, USA. These are both available on our website. Now, moving on to the next paper. 
It is well known that cohort heterogeneity in treatment vary by country, but they also may vary within a country. Hazelwood and Canadian colleagues examined these issues in a patient paper entitled Heterogeneity in Patient Characteristics in Treatment Across Four Canadian Rheumatology Rheumatoid Arthritis Cohorts. In this paper, four longitudinal cohorts from across Canada were examined for a total of 10,211 patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Data was collected from inception into the registry to 2020. Clinical characteristics and drug treatments were summarized descriptively. The percentage of patients who entered the cohorts with early RAA ranged from a high of 100% in the early RAA cohort to a low of 29%. But interestingly, the mean age, sex, and seropositivity were similar among the four cohorts. At the time of initial disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, or DMARD use, the median DAS-28 score ranged from a low of 2.99 to a high of 5.19. And the time to first DMARD switch, first biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD use, and second biologic DMARD or small molecule DMARD still showed variation across the cohorts, but tended to be more similar than the DAS-28 scores. The initial DMARD was most commonly methotrexate, used either in monotherapy or dual therapy, but the percentage of patients initially treated with methotrexate differed among the cohorts. There was, however, consistency in the use of anti-TNF agent as the first biologic DMARD across all the cohorts. Please read this article to get more details on how switching to another DMARD as monotherapy, the use of dual therapy, the switch to a biologic DMARD, or a targeted synthetic DMARD, differed between the cohorts. In the discussion, the authors review how inclusion criteria, year the cohort was initiated, and or regional differences within a single country can lead to heterogeneity of treatment. Of course, the next step would be to see how these differ, differences alter outcome. We are lo anxiously looking forward to this data. The next paper to highlight is entitled Anti-Interleukin-6 Therapy, Effect for Refractory Joint and Skin Involvement in Systemic Sclerosis, a Real-World Single-Center Experience, and is by Panopoulos and colleagues. Currently, there are a limited number of safe and effective long-term therapies for patients with systemic sclerosis, and therefore, new safe and effective therapies are required. 
the aim of this study was to determine the safety and efficacy of tozolizumab, an interleukin-6 receptor antagonist in patients with systemic sclerosis with joint and or skin involvement, which had been refractory to prior therapies. The cohort consisted of 22 patients, of which 20 were women, 16 had diffuse systemic sclerosis, 10 patients had early disease, and 11 patients had long-standing disease with a mean disease duration of 6.4 years. All patients had active refractory skin and or joint disease and received weekly subcutaneous injections with tozolizumab. Major outcome measures were the changes in the modified Rodnan skin score, disease activity score as DAS-28, lung function as measured by lung function tests, and the patient reported outcomes, which all were measured after one year and at the end of follow-up. Of the 21 patients, one discontinued because of inefficacy after three months. At one year, 12 patients had low disease activity. 13 achieved a minimal clinically significant change in the modified Rodnan skin score. The mean DAS-28 change was 1.9. The Systemic sclerosis hack decreased by a mean of 0.6, and the physician and patient global assessments improved. Lung function tests were stable in 16 patients. In year two, one patient died, and three further patients discontinued therapy, one because of CMV infection, and two for inefficacy. In the 16 patients who continued tozolizumab therapy, there was sustained beneficial effects after a mean follow-up of 2.2 years. There were recurrent digital ulcer infections in three patients, which resulted in a temporary discontinuation of tozolizumab. Read this article to gain further insights into the potential benefits of interleukin-6 inhibition in patients with difficult to treat skin or joint disease with systemic sclerosis. Frailty is an important issue in the outcome of patients with SLE, but currently it is unclear how to best measure frailty. In the next paper to highlight, entitled Evaluation of Patient-Reported Frailty Tool in Women with Systemic Lupus, Lieber and colleagues compared two frailty metrics, the self-reported frail scale and the freed phenotype. 67 adult women less than 70 years of age with SLE and moderate to mild disease, enrolled in a cross-sectional study over a 15-month period. 
the investigators found that 27% of patients were frail, according to the self-reported frail scale, and 18% by the freed phenotype, although there was a significantly significant correlation between the two scales, the R value was low at 0.5 and the kappa for agreement was 0.46. They found that frail women had greater disease damage, a higher high sensitivity CRP and interleukin-6 level, as well as worth PROMs according to both frailty definitions. Although both frailty measures were associated with self-reported disability after adjustment for age, comorbidity, and disease activity, as well as damage, the relationship was attenuated in the freed phenotype scale. Please read this paper to understand the importance of frailty in women with SLA, the implications of frailty to outcome, and how to use these measures to identify frailty in your patients with SLA. The last paper to highlight this month is entitled, OA Synovitis is Associated with Constant Pain in Knee Osteoarthritis, a cross-sectional study of OMARAC knee ultrasound scores and is by Phil Pott and colleagues. As may be deduced by the title, the aim of this paper was to examine the association between knee inflammation as measured by ultrasound and pain in 248 patients with knee osteoarthritis. The investigators found that there was an association with the degree of synovitis and the effusion size on ultrasound with an increasing chance of having constant but not intermittent pain. When they examined patients with early radiographic OA, they found that now the association was with both intermittent and constant pain. However, in patients with, who had late radiographic OA, there was no longer an association with synovitis and either intermittent or constant pain. Please read this article as it has important clinical implications for the pain experience in patients with OA. The title of the image in rheumatology feature this month is tuberculosis presenting as an inflammatory pseudotumor of the sciatic nerve in a rheumatoid arthritis patient taking etanercept. This paper describes a 46-year-old woman with RA who is in remission on etanercept. She was admitted to the hospital because of a four-month history of progressive hypoesthesia and paresthesia, initially on her left foot and then extending up the left knee. Neurological examination revealed decreased muscle strength, particularly in the left foot dorsiflexion. EMG showed post-ganglionic -gangly changes 
affecting both motor and sensory fibers. MRI of the thigh showed a fusiform left sciatic nerve mass with con contrast enhancement. The authors went on to, to a sciatic nerve biopsy, which showed a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate with necrotic epithelial granuloma and multinucleated giant cells. There was no evidence of malignancy, but she did have a positive tubercular skin test, which led to the diagnosis of tuberculosis of the sciatic nerve sheath. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all of the articles in the January 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition available at www.jroom.org. And please watch my interviews with the author of the highlighted articles, not only of this month, but also of the previous month, if you have missed them. They are available at our website and on YouTube. If there are any questions or comments of the highlighted articles or any article which appeared in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. Please listen next month for February edition of Editor's Highlights and stay healthy. That's it.